So we're moving again. We're going to uh, shift our focus again. We've been, uh, in the last three weeks, we were, we were focused kind of in the western part of the Roman Empire. And uh, if you remember, we talked about Tertullian. Do you remember what city Tertullian was in? From? Carthage was, uh, it's West Africa, um, it, it's way out there, and as we've talked about before, the, the church's theology is taking some different themes, following some different line, uh, themes, you could say, uh, depending on whether you're East or West. The West is kind of going one way, the East is kind of going another way. Well, today we want to go back East, and we're going to be back in the city of Alexandria, we're in the third century. We're going to back up just a tad. So uh, with Tertullian, we've been in kind of the early third century. I'm going to start with a story from right about the turn of the third century. Uh, I don't know the exact date of this, but right about the turn of the third century, there was a persecution that broke out in Alexandria. Now, if you remember Alexandria, it was kind of a liberal city. Um, they were generally pretty tolerant, um, but at the end of End of the second, beginning of the third centuries, for whatever reason, that toleration kind of was dropped by the side and um, a pretty bad persecution arose. A lot of Christians were imprisoned, many were killed. And there's a story about a man named Leonides. Now, Leonides was a devout Christian and somebody denounced him. So he was arrested, he was jailed, and he was commanded to renounce his faith, or else they were going to kill him. Now, Leonides had a family, he had a wife and some children, and his oldest son, at that time, was about 17. Now, the young, the young teenager, the 17-year-old, he was really zealous for the faith. And as soon as he heard that his father was in prison, he was determined to go and turn himself in and suffer martyrdom alongside his father. His, his mother, the young man's mother, prevented this by stealing all his clothes and hiding them somewhere, I think. But um, what, at any rate, he wasn't able to do what he intended to do. So instead, he contented himself by sitting down and writing a letter to his dad. So he wrote, wrote this letter, and in this letter, he implored his father to remain true to the faith. He said, don't worry about the family, um, but whatever you do, just don't deny Christ. Now, in the end... Leonides, in fact, did not deny Christ. He remained true to his confession, and he was, uh, by reports, he was beheaded. His 17-year-old son, uh, however, went on, and he grew up to become one of the most famous theologians and philosophers of his own time. His fame extended not just to, not just within the church, but also outside the church. He was famous among <coughs> outsiders, and this young man's name was Origen. O-R-I-G-E-N, don't know if you've heard of them or not before, but probably the biggest, uh, most influential, and most, um, you could say the biggest name of the third century inside the church. So today I want to uh, kind of briefly introduce you to Origen. Um, it's really, uh, I, I really want us mainly to just appreciate um, how influential he was, um, both in the third century and also in the following centuries of church history after that. Uh, he spent, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about Tertullian, uh, three weeks in fact, and actually Tertullian's lifetime, he's a little bit earlier than Origen, but his lifetime overlaps, he also was, his ministry really began 
uh, kind of the end of second and winter third century. Uh, because we spent so much time on Tertullian, and we're only going to spend maybe today on origin, what I don't want is I don't want you to miss the reality of um, thinking that perhaps uh, origin, well, thinking perhaps that Tertullian was the uh, big deal of the third century and origin was the footnote. If anything, perhaps the opposite might be the case. Origin was the household name. He was, by all means, far more famous. And maybe Tertullian was less so, although both were somewhat famous. Really, you could say that the big deal of the third century was, was origin, if it was anybody. But I think the reason that we're going to really just spend a little bit of time on origin is because in the case of Tertullian, Tertullian's theology uh, reflected a lot of trends that became uh, carried on well beyond the patristic area. It went past the, the time of the fathers and even down to our own day and really influences a lot of Christians in the way that they think. Um, in the case of Origen, Origen, I don't feel like that was so much so. Maybe There may be people who disagree with me, but I feel like with Origen, he, he was very influential kind of in a few centuries of time, and then he was well-remembered after that time. The church never forgot him. He's this great guy that they remembered. But there's not really a branch of Christianity afterward that is, you know, profoundly or strongly Originian in their doctrine, uh, whereas the, that you could say that of Tertullian. Tertullian was maybe more influential afterward, after he died. So that's kind of the reason why we're just going to spend a little bit of time. It's important to know about origin, but I don't think we need to spend a whole ton of time on it. All right, so let's continue with origin story. So a little bit of backup and a little bit of review. If you remember, we talked about a fellow a number of weeks back named Clement of Alexandria. And do you remember, what do you remember about Clement of Alexandria? What was uh, interesting or significant about him? Like a, a uniter of some faction, a faction or I don't know if he was. Okay. Not necessarily. He made them. Well, let's back up a little more. What was Alexandria? Again, we, we visited visited it, I think, back in October or something. Um, what was Alexandria as a city in, in the context of the Christian church? What was Alexandria famous for? What kind of trends were affecting Christian thought in Alexandria? Gnostics were very influential in Alexandria. And that was part of a wider culture in Alexandria that really revolved around Greek philosophy. So by way of review, uh, Alexandria, again, as we said, it's this liberal city. It's a city filled with people sort of seeking knowledge, so to speak not scientific knowledge or historical knowledge so much, but rather philosophical knowledge. And the church in Alexandria is uh, kind of influenced by this. For one thing, they try to engage this culture by opening a catechetical school. And this catechetical school is, uh, the purpose of it is to instruct new believers prior to their baptism, as well as to instruct or teach seekers who are interested but haven't yet believed. And as uh, 
either be, either alongside of this school or maybe even out of this school, Christian theology in Alexandria begins to take on a certain flavor. It, um, it, it kind of uh, begins to syncretize or harmonize with Greek philosophy, especially the philosophy of Platonism. So Clement of Alexandria, he was the second head of that catechetical school. He's the one that we probably know uh, more about, the earliest one that we really know much about. And um, a lot of his uh, writings have survived. In the persecution in which Leonides was martyred, Clement of Alexandria was forced to flee. And that makes a lot of sense to me. He would, if, if he was the head of that school, which we know he was, um, that would have made him a high-profile mark for the persecutors. So it would seem natural to me if he felt like he needed to get out of town. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But he did get out of town, he got out of Alexandria, and the result was the school now uh, was without leadership and possibly not very functional either. It didn't really, like the leader out of the school was also kind of like the main teacher. So, now back to Origen. This is kind of where Origen comes in. He's a 17 year old, his dad just got martyred. After his dad was killed, Origen and his family lost uh, all their possessions, they lost their home. Uh, but fortunately, they were taken in by a wealthy woman who had sympathy on the family. I don't know if she was a Christian or if she was just an acquaintance of the family, but she took them in, took care of them, and kind of became a patron more or less. So what happened for Origen is prior to his dad's death, his dad had him studying theology and I believe philosophy as well. After his dad died, because this lady took care of the family, Origen was able to continue those studies. Now, after about a year of uh, this, uh, uh, Origen kind of continuing his studies, with Clement now absent, and probably also a lot of other church leaders either martyred or fled from Alexandria, the school doesn't have a leader, <coughs> Origen receives the headship of the school. And he comes in and he starts teaching, uh, teaching people, new believers and seekers about uh, Christianity. Now, at this young age, it seems that he'd already been really, he'd already become a really brilliant um, uh, mind, even for how young he was, and uh, more than that, he was very winsome in the way that he talked. So, overnight, the school multiplied in size. It, it just, uh, uh, he was a big hit, and before you knew it, the school was had more people than he could handle. And he actually had to start delegating some of his, some of his teaching responsibilities. He delegated the younger novices, the new believers, the youngest people, to um, another teacher. And then he kind of took responsibility for more advanced students who were learning uh, theology more in depth. Any questions? Okay, let's move on. So, a lot like Tertullian, Origen is also, he's this giant of theology in the third century and philosophy, but he's also a very controversial church leader. Uh, he's very, very different from Tertullian. His theology is a world away. If you remember, Tertullian really didn't like Greek philosophy. But Origen follows right in the footsteps of the other Alexandrians at that time. He followed right, he could say that uh, Clement of Alexander Alexandria was kind of a model for him in some ways. Only Origen took it even further. He um, 
takes harmonization of the Bible and philosophy probably further than really any of his predecessors. I think the furthest that anybody in the church took it without being widely rejected by the church and, and denounced as a heretic. Now, in fact, a lot of individuals did think he was a heretic. And even today, uh, throughout, throughout history, people have said, oh, Origen, he's a heretic. But the church has never kind of been in full agreement on that, you know, on a wide, wide level. He got weird. Um, he got very weird. And also, he had his defenders, too. So a lot, he had his critics on one side, and he had people on the other side who were very, very defensive of him and felt that he was, uh, um, you know, actually quite orthodox. Our friend Eusebius, the guy that we've been uh, sort of referring to for the in his church history, the, the fourth century father of church history, as we call him, he was a big fan of Origen, and he actually wrote a uh, defense of Origen. He wrote an apology, just defending the man. Now, Origen wrote thousands of uh, literary works. Um, we don't know how many, obviously, because a lot have not survived, but he's probably, quite possibly, the most proliferous uh, church father up to his time. And uh, his magnum opus is a book called, uh, in Latin, I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's uh, called De Principius. And what it means is, on the foundations, um, Dr. James, another fellow that I've referred to a few times, he kind of considers this to be the first true attempt at a systematic theology. It's very consciously, uh, in it, origin is very consciously trying to develop a body of work. And I think this um, this book is probably one of the best places to kind of go and maybe get an idea of what Origen's mind uh, was on theology. So we can kind of let him speak for himself from it. Um, one of the things he does there is right, right at the beginning of that book, he sums up his approach to theology. And he starts by saying this, quote, all who believe and are assured that grace and truth were obtained through Jesus Christ, derive the knowledge from no other source than from the very words and teaching of Christ. And then he goes on to say, after he states that, he goes on to say that these words and teaching of Christ are contained not only in what Jesus personally speaks in the Gospels, but also in the writings of Moses and in the prophets, and in the writings of the apostles. So in a word, Origen is saying Christ's teachings are found in the whole Old and New Testament scriptures. Now, um, I think it sounds pretty good to me, right? Uh, quite orthodox in that statement, at least. Now, Origen also argues this. He argues that these teachings uh, in the scriptures have fixed a definite limit that's what he calls it, a definite limit with respect to certain doctrines. And he lists what those, those doctrines are. He says this, there is one God who created and arranged all things. Um, again, he says, Jesus Christ himself was born of the Father, served in the creation of all things, became a man, although God, while made, while made a man, remained the God which he was. Also says, another point that he makes, Christ was truly born and did truly suffer, did truly die, and did truly rise from the dead. Have you heard that before? Long time ago, that was, uh, I want to say spring, we studied a guy named Ignatius, one of the apostolic fathers. He said the exact same statement. So I don't know, that may have become, this phrase may actually become a um, sort of a mantra in the church at the time. Um, 
He also says that the Holy Spirit, Origen says, the Holy Spirit was associated in honor and dignity with the Father and the Son. That's one's not quite as clear, but it seems like he's making the Holy Spirit equal with the Father and the Son in that statement. So, so far, um, just from that beginning of his introduction, um, it's pretty good, right? Um, what could be more orthodox than these statements by Origen? And so Origen, on one level, definitely was pretty orthodox in respect to a lot of... Um, a lot of key major doctrines. However, while he sets forward what he believes are the definite limits um, to Christian doctrine, he follows it up with a big, a big but, a big however. And he goes on, he says, he, he basically uses this however to open the gates for a great deal of speculation. Because he goes on and he says that there are many things that are not clearly stated. And among them are questions of, of, for example, where the angels came from, how the devil and his angels fell, the nature of the sun and the moon, are they beings or are they, are they just uh, you know, inanimate objects? Is there such a thing, he asked this, is there such a thing as what the philosophers call incorporeal? And he says, after he asks all these questions, he says, there are not definite answers on these things. Therefore, he says this quote, Everyone must make use of the elements and foundations of this sort if he would desire to form a connected series and body of truths and form one body of doctrine by means of arguments, either those which he has discovered in Holy Scripture or which he has deduced by tracing out the consequences and following a correct method. So in other words, Origen believes that Scripture has given us definite answers on some things, spiritual things, and on the rest... We must form conclusions by means of reason. For him, that's philosophy. Platonism. Any questions? Any thoughts about that? <clears throat> thoughts? Agree or disagree? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, there's, sure, there's, the things you mentioned aren't um, clear in Scripture about angels, where they come from, and when they were created, and the fall of Satan, and that, those sorts of things, but I guess his, uh, his uh, conclusion is, should we, is it important to know, is it, is it, does it, does it require us to go into realms of philosophy and try to figure that out? That's where it's kind of uh, questionable, like to the, the extent to which we go with that. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to say, oh, we don't know, and yeah. God doesn't want us to know, therefore. Yeah, I feel like you're saying you got to be careful, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You really yeah. got to be careful. And that's where I think Origen's big uh, fallacy and error was. Um, so out of this... Once he's opened this gate for himself to speculate a great deal using philosophy, out of that come a great number of peculiarities about Origen. He says some really weird stuff. And um, some of the biggest things that we've mentioned, he's basically orthodox on. But then there's some other things where it sounds like he's out of this, he's out of the orbit entirely. So we'll just go over those real briefly so you get a kind of a feel for Origen. Another thing that's worth saying, so another one of my sources, Philip Schaff, who I've referred to a bit, he, 
quoted Jerome, who's a, I think he's a fourth century father, really influential as well, who was commenting on Origen. And Jerome said, you know, sometimes when you read Origen, you don't take him, don't, you don't want to take him fully seriously. He's kind of just thinking out loud. So you got to be a little bit careful. Some of the things that Origen says, he may not be dogmatic about. But this is what he does. Uh, this one he probably used to know about, actually, the first thing. He, he took on, he championed what was called the, the allegorical method of interpretation. And in that, he reads a lot of narrative, both Old Testament and New Testament historical narrative. And instead of reading it plainly as it is, as the, you know, telling what happened, he kind of denies the literal interpretation and says this is just a metaphor. It's a metaphor of something. And so he dismisses large um, portions of uh, well, these significant portions of both John, uh, the book of Matthew, and possibly some Old Testament texts as well, saying, well, really, this is a metaphorical interpretation. So that kind of forms a foundation, and once he's sort of taking things metaphorically, he goes on to uh, say some other things as well, that he kind of sort of thinks out, okay, if this is a metaphor, then I can make this metaphor mean this, that, or the other it's kind of also ironic when the fact that he's so metaphorical. Origen is simultaneously famous for being, uh, take perhaps the most, um, uh, the most extreme instance of taking the Bible too literally, as well as being one of the most extreme theologians in taking the Bible too allegorically. Eusebius tells us that when Origen was still very young and, as we've seen, impetuously zealous for the faith, he took Matthew 9.12 into literal and absurd sense. Uh, Matthew 9.12 is where Jesus said, there are those who may have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And that's what Origen did to himself. He basically made himself physically a eunuch uh, when he was still really a young man. So he's kind of famous for that. On the one hand, he got into a little bit of trouble for doing that too with some of the other Christians at the time. But on the other hand, he then turns around and he uh, takes things like the, uh, Jesus clearing out the temple, for example, and he, he argues that that's just a metaphor. Um, Jesus didn't really do that, and he gives all these reasons. Um, so, some things just to know about Origen. He's starting from a place, his hermeneutic from the beginning is also not, is, is not very careful with scripture. He's trying to... Uh, um, say that in many cases it's metaphorical, and then that gives him more liberty to come up with some of the other ideas that he has. Uh, some other ideas that he came up with, or that he basically taught and um, elaborated on, is he believed in the pre-existence and the fall of souls. So prior to the world being created, God actually created all of us as spiritual beings, all human beings, and we fell before the world was created. And then as a result of the fall, we then took on matter. Very Gnostic, actually, if you think about it. Um, now, he's, he, do, he separates from the Gnostics very clearly in that he believes God, who created the world, is a good God. He doesn't believe in a demiurge or some evil God who did it. He clearly says that God created the world. So he, he, he separates from them significantly, but he also takes some of their um, stuff. He also believes that, that he does kind of seem to see Christians in, or people in three ranks. There's the Christians who have this higher knowledge, um, a deeper understanding of, of spiritual things. Then there's Christians who have simple faith. And then after that, there are unbelievers. Um, so, and of course, the, the ultimate goal for everybody is to arrive at that, not just knowledge, but that higher faith. That's where you get to the, the blessed life with 
and um, origins theology. And finally, and we probably could go on, but another big one that, that could get him into trouble is it appears he may have believed in universalism. And that's the idea that in the end, everybody gets saved. So again, uh, I'm referring to Dr. James for a lot of this. Um, Dr. James says that uh, Origen believed there's the Christians with knowledge. They go straight to eternal bliss when they die. And then there's Christians who just have faith. And when they die, they go through a moment or a stage of training to get them to that higher knowledge. And then there are the unbelievers. And when unbelievers die, they go through intense suffering to purge them of their sins and advance them ultimately on to you know, salvation. So he was a universalist, it appears. Now the story about Origen's life, that's, a, that's more or less just a summary of, of some of the weird things, some of the big things that uh, um, Origen wrote about. Um, the story of Origen's life, just to wrap it up, um, his ministry, as we've mentioned, it began and flourished in Alexandria. He did some itinerant ministry, but um, in the early years, he was mostly in Alexandria. Eventually, however, uh, he kind of developed, he got into a rivalry with the bishop of the Church of Alexandria. And so eventually he was forced to leave Alexandria. And so he set up in another town called Caesarea. So you guys are all familiar with Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean there. So he moved over there and... Um, uh, continued most of the rest of his ministry in that city. It seems like he was really winsome and persuasive with people outside the church. Eusebius tells us about a number of heretics as well as just unbelievers um, who he persuaded to believe Orthodox Christianity. And then uh, he was so famous, in fact, that at one point he actually had a, an audience with the Roman Emperor's mom. Uh, she had a lot of philosophical questions to ask him, so... Uh, he, he actually got that audience with, with her. Um, now, in the end, after the uh, bishop of Alexandria eventually died, he did end up going back to Alexandria. And, and there was an emperor in about, who came to power in about 249 AD, whose name was Decius. The big persecution started under Decius. And under Decius, basically what he did is he tried to systematize persecution of Christians, he wanted to get rid of them entirely. Um, so this was a really cruel persecution, uh, persecution, one of the worst. And it was during this persecution that Origen was himself arrested. He was mercilessly tortured for a matter of days. Um, but he didn't, according to reports, he didn't deny faith. Decius died. And then after Decius died, Origen was released. However, Origen died probably within a, a year or so of his release, and most scholars believe he died because of his injuries from the torture. So that's the story of Origen.